Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man. What's up, everybody? Uh, just edited this podcast, uh, found this memory card as well, and it is from Elk Shape Camp, Oregon in February of 2020, and it's a four-hour lecture on elk hunting success from top to bottom. It's a two-hour slide show that we stretched out to four hours because Dirk's there. We're getting his opinion, his strategies. We're comparing, contrasting, but we're just basically talking about top to bottom elk hunting success from scouting to elk behavior, to elk biology, to reading sign and elk vocalizations. Uh, it's really powerful. And I want to give this to you guys, uh, while it's September, in case maybe this will help you seal the deal. And if you want to catch the rest of this presentation, like I said, it's four hours long. I'm going to put the last two hours on theelkcollective.com. It's called the Overdrive Podcast. It's not a free podcast. You have to be a, a member of the Elk Collective. If you don't know what the Elk Collective is, I'm glad you asked. It is where Jason Phelps, Dirk Durham, John Gabriel, and myself teamed up to create a one-stop location for you to gather all the elk hunting information that you need regardless of where you're at in the elk hunting learning curve or journey. Maybe you're a total rookie noob and you're planning your elk hunting, you need this course. Maybe you're somebody who's experienced success but just not consistent, you need this 
you need this course. Or maybe you're somebody who's a seasoned elk hunter, maybe you're a rifle elk hunter and you want to learn more about archery tactics or vice versa. We cover muzzleloader rifle, archery, elk biology, fitness, uh, everything from elk shape camps is lives and breathes at this website as well as other subject matter experts that have great success. Everyone has their own way of getting it done. So we have Brian Barney, Ryan Lampers, Joel Turner, Chris Rowe, and of course all of us guys too. And we just cover all things elk hunting. So check that out. Uh, this podcast is powered by Vortex Optics. They make the good stuff with affordable prices, blue collar, veteran-owned company out of Wisconsin, huge supporter of the Elk Shape brand. If you're ever interested in looking at some of the Vortex apparel, go to their website, check it out. If you see something you like, use discount code ELKSHAPE and you can save 20% off that. For you supplement folks that like Wilderness Athlete protein bars, they have some trail bars and some snack bars, as well as Hydrate Recover, Energy Focus, and you've never purchased it, use the discount code ELKSHAPE30 to save 30%. And then the last one I want to plug is the e-bike. Baku e-bikes, I use them while elk hunting. We talk about e-bikes in this lecture. If you're in the market, use the discount code ELKSHAPE400. Get yourself an e-bike made by hunters for hunters. We'll get right into this podcast. This is Dirk and me doing a live lecture at Elk Shape Camp, Oregon. And if you dig it and want to catch the rest, head over to the Elk Collective and you can catch the last two hours there. And uh, we'll catch you at the end of the show. Okay, Elk Shape Camp success. Uh, you guys are going to want to see the screen. I'm going to go over stuff that you're going to want to make sure you know how to do on the interwebs because there's going to be e-scouting stuff. So the closer you can get, the better. Um, planning an elk hunt, which is so the whole theme of Elk Shape Camp is like controlling what you can control. 365 prep. Like that's the beauty of elk hunting. You can't just, well, you could just show up and try it but you won't have consistent success. I can guarantee you that, especially as elk hunting's growing in popularity. I mean, the competition's never been higher. So if you, I mean, you'll find out at the trailhead if you haven't already. And so who, what, when, where, and why, and defining your expectations. And Dirk's going to piggyback off everything I say and give you his two cents. But, like, I don't know if you guys knew this, but I generally hunt elk solo uh, for a lot of reasons. But I can hunt with others as well, but I would run a filter through who I hunted with. If you are soft mentally, I'm not going to want to hunt with you. If you don't work out consistently, I'm not going to hunt with you. You're going to hold me back. You're not disciplined. And if you're not disciplined outside of elk hunting, it's going to trickle into elk hunting. You know, if the, if the wind isn't right, you may go, ah, it's okay, it'll be fine. That's a lack of discipline. And that's going to cost you a potential opportunity. So for me, everything that I do revolves around discipline and delayed gratification. You hear me say it all the time, but it does parallel elk hunting. The more disciplined you are in the mountains, I feel like the more success you're going to have. So how do you practice discipline? Well, it starts at 5 a.m. or 4.30 or whenever your alarm goes off and you go work out. Do you think I really want to wake up? No, I would love to stay in my warm, cozy bed, my hot wife right there. That would be great. But no, get up, drink coffee, go work out win the day, get it done and just break a sweat in the name of better elk hunting. Okay. I'm a better version when I'm done working out. Um, I have more energy. I have endorphins and I'm, you know, I'm taking care of business. I'm taking care of myself. 
and I'm doing hard stuff. So when the workout sucks and I want to put the barbell down or if I want to, you know, lower the intensity and I don't, I'm adding little, you know, I'm, I'm increasing my mental portfolio. I'm getting a little bit stronger. I'm diversifying the amount of times that I've said no to being lazy, no to being weak. And so that all comes back to elk hunting. And so when I elk hunt with guys, uh, I've had guys that just, you know, after three or four days of getting their teeth kicked in, they're done. They want to pack it in. They want to, they want a cheeseburger. They want to go see their wife or kids or, um, all that kind of stuff. And for me, it's so finite. And I think about it for so long, I don't, I don't want to squander a second in the mountains. And so that is my secret sauce is not giving up and not wasting, you know, I rarely will take naps elk hunting and stuff like that because I feel like now there's time and places when if you're on a herd and you just not the time to go in on them. Yeah, man, let's have a nap. Let's whatever. But you know what I'm saying? Like I don't, I don't schedule a nap during my day for elk hunting. You know what I mean? That's not in the plan, but if it happens, fine. Um, but who I hunt with is really important. Do we have shared values, shared ethics, shared work ethic? Uh, are they positive? Are they, are they the kind of people that are going to pull their weight? Okay, so I've had I've gone on an antelope hunt with a guy who like invited himself with us, and he showed up. He never made dinner. He never did camp chores. He ate all our food. He didn't pay for the campground fees or his share. He was like that is the pull. Like that's if you're hunting with a new group of guys, your goal if you guys are rookies is to be invited back. You want to know how you get invited back by like not asking, hey, can I help, but just doing. And then taking initiative and stuff like that. And so I want to I want to hang out around people like that. So who I hunt with, and and then what's our um, what's the what's the objective? Um, have we have any of us killed an elk before? No. Okay. Any elk? That's our objective. Cool. That's our ultimate goal is to get elk meat in the freezer and just have a great experience and learn. Or maybe it's like I really want to kill a bull, but uh, I really want to just gain some experience and get some reps in the mountains. That's cool. You guys need to know what your expectations are for you. What it is? What is your elk season going to look like, and what are you trying to get out of it this year? You know, so if you guys are just man, I want to get some encounters with some elk. I want to communicate with them back and forth. I want to start shortening the learning curve. Great. So I think it's important to take a step back and look at what is the season like. What are we looking at doing, um, and know your why. What? Why are you sacrificing all this time for elk hunting? Is it, you know. Just keep asking why enough times and you'll get to the bottom of the reason. Why do you like elk hunting? Oh, because it's cool. Well, why is it cool? Oh, it's, it's a challenge. Well, why is it a challenge? Well, because it tests me. Well, why does it test you? Because it's really fucking hard. Well, why is it so hard? Well, I don't know. It's just they don't want to die. And, you know, you get down to all these things and you kind of figure out it really makes me tick. And it really challenges me. And it really makes me feel like you know, I'm part of something really cool and I have a purpose. I have a purpose in life. That's a cool thing. So kind of understanding your why and stuff like that is important. So I think you guys should define your expectations before you kind of figure out where to go. Um, let's talk about budget. I saw that um, a guy was talking about you could hunt elk for $1,000 or something like that. And I just, uh, have you guys ever heard that? Like, oh, you can hunt elk on a $1,000 budget. Have you heard that? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. False. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I guess you could hunt here in Oregon. What's your elk tag? Look for you residents. Okay, you guys might be able to do it. You guys could probably do it. But for more or less, like, 
if you're going to hunt out of state, which some of you in Oregon are going to start thinking about that because, you know, your wolf population is increasing. Um, urban sprawl is right in your face. There's more and more people, less and less opportunities. The woods are getting crowded. We have, you know, predators. You guys can't run hounds. You can't bait bears, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's all those excuses. But really, truly, you might going to go out of state anyways because it's just really fun to check out new country. A little wanderlust. I enjoy going new places. New tests. Oh, that's so, so understand that he's saying like, okay, so you're literally, your time is worth something and you're away from work. Are you taking vacation without pay? Like, you know, you could be having wage loss as well, stuff like that. So license and tag, 800 bucks ish, give or take. That's about the average for the OTC states. We'll go over those. Gas, depending on if you're driving a big diesel or you got a Chevy 2500 or a little Tacoma, whatever it is. That's going to fluctuate groceries. You, I mean, you're going to buy some groceries when you roll into the last town, right? You're going to get some ice and some real food or whatever. Gear upgrades, that number could go way up. I know that a lot of us are big time into gear and stuff like that. Meat processing, like a lot of people don't have a plan for that. Like they don't butcher their own meat. I, I prefer to have my the meat that a, the, the meat on the elk I killed. I want to make sure it goes into my freezer. I don't give it to other, anyone else to butcher. If I had like a three-state back-to-back hunt, I could consider dropping it off at a butcher if I just didn't have time to deal with it. But I've gone as far as to build my own do-it-yourself like cooler, walk-in cooler for elk meat and let it hang. But packers, you know, a lot of guys hunt real deep but don't really think about well, what are we going to do if we actually get one, especially if you hunt solo. Like what are you actually going to do? Like are you okay with losing meat you shouldn't be? I've lost meat on an elk one time, and I'll never have that happen again, and that was all my bad, not planning. So, you know, packers are are a whole other obstacle. Like, you have to be able to get a hold of them. They have to be available. You have to have, like, a pre-arrangement as to where, what trailhead or where you're going to get the meat to. Like, they're not going to just ride their horses to the side, you know, of a mountain where there's no, you know, it's nothing but downfall. They can't get their stock there, you know. So thinking about all this all this comes down to planning. And so you should probably be planning. You can control that. That's what this distills down. You kind of got to look at the uh, Guides and Outfitters uh, Association website and look at the area you're going to go to. Look who's the licensed guide and outfitter in that unit and contact them and have that conversation long before season comes. This is where I'm going. This is what I'm doing. Is that something that you would, a service you would provide? Yes, it is. How much is that going to cost? 500 bucks. Take 1000 cash because everybody up front you know sometimes you know oh yeah it's going to be this you kill one in a bad place or maybe the guy's shady and he's like i just changed my mind you're pretty desperate i'm going to charge you double you have to be prepared for that and if i mean you could balk at it but maybe you're going to lose meat now so you have to be prepared and then how are you going to get a hold of the packer what if you don't get cell phone service? Did you do you have an inreach? Do they have an inreach? What if they're packing meat out and you can't get a hold of them? So having multiple packers, a lot of you I've just noticed there's a lot more fit guys now elk hunting that don't think about, oh wait, how am I gonna get this meat out? You know what I mean? And that's that's just something that you should really consider, especially now that you're you're gonna become more deadly after this weekend. You know, you're really gonna have a chance to kill something. So be thinking about those. You can be incredibly in shape, fit. One of the baddest asses around, eight miles deep, you kill an elk by yourself, you're going to struggle. I don't care who you are. 
Olympic athletes, I don't care who you are. That's All that stuff is completely different than time on the mountain, packing out a 100-pound load of elk meat for eight miles. It's not even miles. Sometimes, like even in Idaho, yep. there are places where if you kill an elk, like it's just logistically – you're you're, you're going to go through a jungle and a downfall jungle and it's going to be steep and so it's not the it's not the miles it's just the terrain features yep so uh tags there's over the counter everyone knows that there's certain types of over the counter too like some places there's over the counters in Idaho where they sell out there's only a certain amount that they all allow to go to non-residents and then that's it so it's not really over the counter but it is then there's over-the-counter unlimiteds, you know, where it's just like... Colorado. Colorado. Come and get it as many as you want, okay? Limited entry. That's... You guys should know that being residents of Oregon, like Mount Emily, uh, the Winaha, or Winaha, whatever you want to call it. What else is in there? Like, where that's... They only give so many tags. Walla Walla. Yep. Sled springs. All that stuff is limited entry. There's only so many tags. And so... It's a lottery. It's yeah. a lottery. And every state's got different point systems. I'm going to dabble a little bit to it, but I don't want to spend a lot of time because that's the kind of research you should do on your own for the most part. We'll cover it a little bit. Leftover tax, so some states will have a draw, like a lottery draw, that people get notified about their tag, and then they have till like August 1st to go buy their tag. They, they drew a limited entry bull elk tag in this unit, and then August 2nd rolls around, and they never came and picked it up, never bought it. Well, let's have a second draw for that. Does that make sense? So some states have that. It's good to know about those. Joe Rogan tags. That's that's like pay-to-play places where 20, 30 grand for your elk tag. You have to have a guide. You are staying in a lodge or you're staying in a wall tent. Um, not every state has landowner tags. Your state does. You're hunting private property. You're hunting private, unpressured elk for the most part. Still, it's not a guarantee. Still elk hunting, but you're going to pay to play, and you're going to get a great experience. Uh, it's not in my budget, and I wouldn't fault others that do it. Like uh, your your guys' most popular hunter here in Oregon guy, he does it. He's worked his way up to that. That's cool. Not for me personally. I kind of like wearing a backpack and, and just cutting my teeth on some okay elk hunting with a bunch of other guys and wolves. And so I love that. I, lo- I want a challenge, and to each his own. But if you're an elk hunter and I'm an elk hunter, we're cool because you get what we both love. So there's the Joe Rogan type of tags where it's going to cost deep pockets. And, I mean, to me, it's just all relative. Like if you if Jeff did the numbers, you could probably figure out what I spend on elk hunting, and it's probably a percentage of my total gross revenue a year. If you did that to Joe, <laughs> Joe Rogan's revenue, he, you'd be like, well, he actually spends less on hunting than you do, Dan. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's all kind of relative. Yeah. I, and so I don't want to sound like a hater. I'm definitely jealous. Like, I'd love to hunt the, the you know, those ranch bulls in Utah and Colorado and, you know, Indian Reservation, Arizona, you know, whatever. But bottom line is elk hunting is going to get more expensive. It's not going to get cheaper. Okay? So you have to really prioritize where you want to elk hunt. Bonus points and preference points. The differences are kind of nuanced, but generally speaking, a bonus point system is a lot of states will just square your points. So... Dirk's got 10 points in Oregon. He's got a, his name goes in the hat 100 times. Still, guy who with one point could still p- potentially draw. You know what I mean? Whereas states like Colorado do like a preference, a true preference point. So those with the most points 
up to a certain percentage are going to get the tags until they die or punt, you know, get their tags filled. Um, every state's a little different. Wyoming is a preference point. Um, Wyoming's very convoluted too because they they have percentages of percentages, and I want to go through all this and confuse you guys. But is there uh, any questions so far on the type of elk tags? Do you know about resources on how many of you are members of like said GoHunt.com? Okay, only the serious ones. Okay, cool. So you non-serious ones, and I am not partnered with GoHunt. I have, do not make a. I pay them $149 a year for their membership, and I wish it, I wish it could be more of a secret like when I first joined, but now everyone has it and has that information, so I can't. You should probably look into Go Hunt. It has a great job of breaking down state-by-state -state draw processes, little nuanced rules and changes. They're always changing. Uh, there's other good ones, too, out there. Do you have any other resource, like just general draw information? Hunting Fool, you yep. can pay for a membership. You get the magazine. And you can actually call them, and they'll give you a consultation over the phone included in your membership. Ridiculous. In fact, if you call them and tell them Elk Shape sent you, they'll give you um, a free consultation before becoming a member. And you'll talk to the CEO, Jared Lyle. So that's something to consider. But I would rec recommend talking to – that's all these guys do for a living is, like, geek out on all the states, all the tags, the regulations – once the biology reports come in and the surveys are in because they're managing th this resource and so it could change your tag allocations and stuff so it's good to geek out on this stuff you with me ceo jared lyle tell him elk shape sent you he'll do a consult with you probably up to an hour over-the-counter prices this is obviously subject to change like especially that idaho one but like so arizona has over-the-counter tags people don't know that right is it good hunting probably not that good and they have some, uh, I forget what it's called. Randy Newberg's covered it quite a bit. But they have some areas where you can um, pretty much draw with no points. It's And it's just basically like the state saying, we got elk here. Elk's not supposed to be here. So let's get people hunt. Let's get hunters to come in and pay and get these elk out of here. So that's going on right now in Arizona. So that would be something to look into if you're into that. You're not hunting 400-inch bulls. So. Uh, Colorado has some changes coming up where they cut, you know, I think they had 90-something over-the-counter units, and I think they're cutting that back quite a bit. And so now you got to actually burn points to hunt the southwest part of Colorado that used to be over-the-counter. What's that going to do? You're probably still going to have the same number of guys coming to Colorado, but now they all can't spread out in those 90 units. So they're all going to get pushed, and so it's going to get even more crowded in Colorado. Something to be aware of. But it's not going to take as many points to hunt those OTCs. And now you're going to choose as well. There's no either sex archery tag. Now it's, well, some of you haven't killed an elk yet. Maybe you should go to Colorado and get that cow tag punched. That would be a great. You probably have the woods to yourself now that it requires points. Does that make sense? And then you also have to pick a bull tag. And this is always changing. You can change. The only change that's not going to happen is they're always going to make money off you. But they're going to change the numbers and the seasons and all that stuff. It's always going to change, and you can't get mad. It just is what it is. Uh, Idaho is uh, decreasing the amount of non-resident tags, most likely in 2021. Still going to be probably 10,000 tags. Right now it's at 12.5K. They're probably going to lower that down a little bit, but they're also going to bump the prices up. So 
your current tag in Idaho is 416. Do you know what it's going up to for non-residents? I think it's going up a couple hundred bucks. A couple hundred bucks. And then they're going to they're gonna punch you in the throat a little bit. Like your archery permit, you have to get an archery permit to use a bow. That's going to go from 20 to $80. But when it's all said and done, it's going to be about 800 bucks. like I said on the last slide, to hunt Idaho for one tag. Oregon, 571. That could change. They could bump that up. But it's about the middle of the road, right under 800 bucks. Utah's got some great non-resident um, elk hunting, but a lot of times it's spike only, you know, in units that are limited entry. So these guys are running around trying to kill just a spike. Can't shoot these big bulls screaming and stuff like that. But they do have some, like Utah's got some pretty good over-the-counter stuff too for archery, if you guys are big into archery. And they also have the extended archery, so you can hunt late into November. Um, bulls migrating out of the Wasatch over-the-counter. You can use it on your general season. So there's lots of opportunities in Utah. And then there's Washington State, which that's where I'm from. And I honestly don't even hunt it. So I don't even know if I could tell in good conscience to come up and hunt it. They make you choose east or west. They'll give you about 12 days of archery hunting. They'll give you about five days of muzzleloader hunting. And they'll give you one weekend to one weekend so for a rifle. And you have to pick one of the three. You can't have a tag that gives you a little this, a little that, a little that. So it's pretty tough, and it's pretty populated. Have you held a tag or license in Oregon? Yeah. So I believe you'll have reciprocity. You could roll in anywhere that sells licenses and tags, buy your hunting license and buy your tag, sign an affidavit that says you've hunted in other state, and you're good to go. But as far as archery, though, as well, because they have an archery education requirement, but if you've archery hunted here in your home state, then you're going to have to have that signed affidavit that said, I've archery hunted before. If not, you have to take their their bow hunter training class, um, which they do online. And it used to be that you'd, you'd have to attend a field day. I'm not sure if you have to attend the field day anymore, but I think you can do all that online. But So it's a good question. So yeah. it's He asked what units... Or he doesn't know about zones. So tell him about zones so in Idaho specifically. you look at Idaho, and it's broken down into different zones. So whether you're looking at the Panhandle or the Sawtooth or the Limhi or all these other different zones. So you say, I want to hunt this part of Idaho. You look at the zone. Okay. Is that an over-the-counter type tag? Yes, it is. Okay. I'm going to buy one. Well, they're all sold out. The popular ones sell out at the first of the year or even – even before the first year, I think they went on sale in what? December 1st. December at midnight. 1st at midnight. So the popular zones sell out first. And then after that, there's a lot of other zones to hunt. But then you have to kind of pick and choose what's left over to where you want to go. And you want to tailor the hunt around maybe the kind of hunt you want to do. Maybe you don't want a wilderness hunt. You don't want to go deep. You want to hunt somewhere with some roads and stuff. And it's like, well, I'm going to ease into this and learn how to hunt up before I go to the furthest, furthest of extreme. There's units like that. There's, it, if you want to backpack for 20 miles straight, there's units like that. But you just have to look and see what kind of hunt is going to suit your needs best and see if there's available tags there. And then there's premium type trophy limited entry units where they're, you know, the age class of the animals is a lot larger. They're a lot older. So you have a lot bigger bulls, bigger bucks. And that's, that's going to be an, a lottery. You, you have to apply, apply for the tag, wait for the lottery to draw, just like, every, you know, just like in Oregon if you try, to do, try that tag. 
but they don't have any bonus points or preference points. So your odds are just as good as his odds, and his odds are just as good as your odds. So nobody has an advantage with points. So it's a true random draw, which is great because the odds are in your favor. Let's compare Idaho and Colorado. You buy over-the-counter tag in Colorado. Same probably deal. Matt, have you hunted, archery hunted another state before? Yes, I have. Cool. Sign this affidavit. Cool. You're covered. You don't have to take bow hunter safety. Buy your license. Buy your tag. You can hunt any designated unit in Colorado that's over the counter. <laughs> right on. Good. Idaho, conversely, is like, all right, Matt, come get your license and tag. Oh, have you ever hunted archery in another state? You have. Oh, cool. Sign this affidavit. Reciprocity. Good to go. Which... Uh, zone do you want to hunt and you're like oh uh, I don't know well pick one and then they'll show you a map and you're like okay I'll, I'll hunt where Dan and Dirk hunts I'm gonna come up to the panhandle and get my ass whooped okay I'll take units one through nine and so you have access to units one through nine and that's it some of the zones in Idaho are only like three or four units but they're big so that's how Idaho does it why uh, let's go Montana Montana's a general say you have a general archery or a general elk tag you can hunt all across Montana as long as it's a general unit. So you got homework to do. To fit, and, and that's what I'm talking about today is this is a whole, the archery, elk, it's a lot of planning and preparing, and you can control that. So you should address it. Oh, Colorado? Yeah, so Colorado does require you to carry proof of hunter education, and some other states do too. Elk populations-ish. Okay, these are just general numbers. So just to look at, you got... Arizona, everybody wants to hunt there, but there's only 35,000-ish elk. Why is it so good? Well, they're really stingy with their tags. They're going to have a good management program. Colorado, 276K. Why isn't everybody trying to go there? Like, that's where, that's where all the elk are. Like, Colorado's got it going on. But people think that Idaho is so amazing, but you guys are from Oregon and you know better. Look at your numbers compared to Idaho. I don't think Oregon gets talked about enough, which is good for you guys. But Oregon's got some serious elk numbers, and you guys have some really good dates. You guys are in a great state to hunt locally. And you can go after those rosies. You can go into Hell's Canyon. You can go into the Eagle Cap. You can do all those other units. I don't really want to say You know, you guys have a lot of good options as Oregon residents. So Utah has as many elk as you guys do. And then Washington does not. I didn't put Wyoming's numbers in here because they don't have over-the-counter. Idaho, over-the-counter archery success rates 2018. This is a screenshot from GoHunt.com. And I just kind of wanted to give you like a clue on when you do your research. Like unit, look at the top unit, 68A, man. Trophy potential, harvest success 61%. the I thought the archery success rates hovered at 10%. Well, look at the public land number. What's the public land number on 68A? That is a pay-to-play area. You think these landowners haven't figured out what they got going on there? Supply and demand? Oh, you want to hunt my property? Well, you have to hire the outfitter that's leasing my spot. Or you have to pay a, a large trespass fee. Does that make sense? So don't get too excited on just success rates. You got to do the whole, like you got to find the public land percentage, and then what's the bull to cow ratio? Do you guys ever heard of that? That's something to like check out. Like <sighs> unit seventy six 
has 310 plus potential, 26% success rate, that's higher than average, 48 bulls to every 100 cows. That's really good for Idaho. Public land, 56%. So, and that's an over-the-counter area. So again, that's probably gonna be another pay-to-play, but you could do some research. We'll talk about that. Start figuring out, well, where is that private ranch? And is there any public surrounding it? And can I get access to it? You know, that kind of stuff. Any questions so far? This is just to kind of paint a picture of some of the research you're going to have to do. Oregon over-the-counter archery success rates. Unit 44. Anybody hunt there? None of you have. You want to know why? Because it's got 6% public land. Unless your uncle owns a ranch there, you're not hunting there. Unit 62. 17% uh, success rate. That's still really, that's good. That's above average. Bull, bull to cow ratio is a measly 7 to 100, but it's got 76% public land. Okay. As an archery elk hunter, the odds are always going to be stacked against you. That's why you're at elk camp right now in February. Because you're like, I don't accept that. I want to do everything in my power to have consistent success. And so this should excite you knowing that most of your friends that aren't here, hopefully they're not going to see the success that you do because you're putting in the work. And I feel like the harder you work, the better chances you have, which is cool. There's not a lot of stuff like that in this world that excites you and gets you out of bed just because you love hearing bugles. You're, you're lucky. You hear me say it on podcasts, but I do think you're blessed to be an elk hunter. I think you can leverage it. So there's Colorado, and we're going to go on and on, but, like, you guys got an idea. So maps and scouting, e-scouting. Jeff's going to help me in on this a little bit, Jeff, so feel free to chime in. So topo maps. I'm old school. I like topo maps. How many of you guys haven't really spent a lot of time looking at topo maps, topographical maps? You all pretty familiar? Okay, so then we can breeze through this. So I, I marked them, and there's your index contour lines. Cool. I On X Hunt. Uh, has a really, you know, they have a feature where they, you can pull your topo maps up. Uh, there's another one out there that Dirk uses. It's called Base Map. They have a really good topo yep. map system as well. Um, whatever. Just have that available on your phone. Love it. Yeah, so having multiple maps to, to look through would be, you know, good. And then obviously having a cell phone that's worth worthwhile going forward for elk hunting, you buy as many gigs as possible when you upgrade your phone. Okay. Because you want to film little parts on your hunt, you want to take pictures, and you want to be able to download. You don't have to worry about memory when you need to download six or seven offline units. Maybe you're going on a three-state bonsai, you know, bonsai run. You should have everything downloaded as much detail as possible. Well, first off, have you ever tried to download maps from cell phone towers when you're on a hunt? It's no good. That's a terrible idea. You're going to pull that. your hair out. You've done it. It's terrible. It's no good. And you, why are you doing that? Because you didn't plan and prepare. Yep. So just something to be thinking about. It's a really good point. We'll get to that. Interval lines on contour maps. That's everything. You can almost just look at topos and start figuring out where the elk are going to be at when you get on that level. I'm still working towards it, but I, I've seen guys do it. So you guys all know what a saddle is on a topo map. You tell me what's so cool about a saddle. Why do we get excited about saddles? It funnels, right? It's a path of least resistance. Animals aren't dumb. They're not going to side hill around a nice saddle, right? The saddle's awesome connection between two high points. I'm going to take the saddle. What do, we, what do we care about saddles? Are saddles reliable on wind? Um, sometimes. So, yeah, I would say 50-50. Yeah. 
but we can check them out. Maybe there's some good rubs, some bulls marking their territory. These are rut rubs, not pre-rut rubs. Uh, we can check out the signs, the tracks. We can look at tracks. We'll get into that, kind of see how fa are the animals moving faster this saddle. Is this a, just a transition zone, or is this a, well, they kind of slowed down and milled around. There's some feed in here. Uh, no, they bedded in here. They liked it. This was a great place. They had escape routes. You know, saddles are a big deal. Okay. Peaks. You guys said you know topos. I'm going to go fast here. Ridge lines, which, you know, like if you're like Dirk and I, if you're, if you're, not, you're not hunting out of a truck, then you're running ridge lines. You're not beating, pounding the brush in the bottom of hellhole canyons. First off, you can't hear in the bottom, especially if there's water running. And it's about covering ground and finding where the elk are at. That's the number one thing that I get messages on after doing elk shape for so many years. I guarantee that's the number one question. How do I find elk? How do I locate elk? Elk are where they are. And I, don't, I can't tell you where they're at, but I can tell you, you need to go find where they're at. And that's going to be boots or vehicle or dirt bike or four-wheeler or stock or helicopter. I don't know what you got to do, but you got to cover ground. Valleys, shelves, benches. Why are those so important? How much time do you guys have to hunt during the day in September? Do you know how many hours of daylight there is? Can we agree about 12 hours of daylight? 80% of those 12 hours, the elk are spent in their bedding area. Are we going to hunt bedding areas? Uh, probably. That's where, that's where they are 80% of the time that we are allowed to shoot our arrows. When they're not in their bedding area, how hard are they to keep up with? <laughs> they're really hard to keep up with. First thing in the morning, daylight, those elk are moving, moving, moving. If you ever chased bugles, they're really hard to, hard to keep up with, especially in treacherous mountain terrain. So they get to that bedding area, guess what? They quit moving. Some guys will say never hunt bedding areas. I say always hunt bedding areas. Yeah, that's, that's, that's bedding areas usually. They, yep, they usually go there to bed because they get it's a little cooler, got more shade on there. Um, but elk will bed and live on every slope. Um, but predominantly... That's where they're going to have the most shade, and especially when it's warm out, you're going to find them there. Bottom line is, is nobody knows what an elk's going to do or say. There is no, like, there's no laws. The only law is that it's going to change. And, like, you have to figure out what that is. That's the beauty of it. I have seen bulls bed in 95 degree, no clouds, hot sun, in the middle of flat sage in Nevada. You know what I mean? And I'm just like... I'm dying out here. How are you guys making it? You know what I mean? Uh, I've seen them. Like, there is no – you can kind of say there's generalizations, but don't be caught up into this is the only way you can call in an elk. This is the only way. Never hunt a bedding area. I would say never say never. Um, to me, I want to look at it logically. So you're telling me, Dirk, a bull spends 80% of his daylight hours in his bedding area? Well, am I supposed to just wait outside patiently for the half an hour that they're going to transition in the morning and in the evening? No, we got to figure out how to do that midday madness and when to strike, and we'll talk about that. And it's not always going to work, but you got to have it. You guys see the different color shading? You see the green and the white? Can you see the white? What's the white mean? No trees. So it's open, okay? Uh, and then does water always start where that map shows? No. No, and there's not always water there. Uh, but that bench does look pretty sexy. Like, let's look at that. They have water starting by that pen dropped 
That's a pretty flat shelf. It's definitely timbered. They can escape right or left, up or down. Mid Most of their 80% of their daylight time, the wind's going to be coming up. And it could probably be swirling a little bit because of that bench. Elk like that. Like there are some places where you just can't mess with bedded elk because it's just a swirl trap. And no one talks about that. But like there's literally, no matter what angle you come in, you want to come in at their level, you're, you're going to screw it up. There's some bulls that just aren't killable where they bedded that day, just like whitetail, okay? You got to understand that, and you have to adapt and adjust. And if you screw it up, then you just got to remember what you saw there and take mental notes. Um, so there's a little feeder creek draw. Wind could be funky in that little spot in the morning. Um, you can see that it's cleared. There's no trees above it. See the white? Uh, I mean, topos will tell you a lot. And some topo systems are better than the others. I've heard people complain about Onyx as not being as accurate. Um, that could be the case. But generally speaking, they're all pretty close. You kind of figure out. And what's cool, and we'll get into this, is when you run your tracking. How many of you guys do not have Onyx? I don't have Onyx Max. You all do. Wow. Do you have one state? You know what? We're going to give you another state for coming to camp. I'm going to email that to you on Monday. But you'll give. we're going to give you another state. It's a... Uh, um, Onyx is hooking that up for you guys. You can pick another state and have it on your thing for a year. You can run tracking on your phone, and if you're on elk trails long enough and then you kind of look at the tracking, you're going to start piecing together how the elk travel on the topography. And that's cool for a couple of reasons because now you have the elk trails. I, I sneak in on elk a lot, and it's really efficient to sneak in like in brush country. When you're on an elk trail, you're a lot quieter. And I don't sneak on elk unless I'm really close, okay? Because predators sneak, right? Elk don't sneak. They're ungulates. They don't know how to sneak, but predators do. And when they hear something sneaking, that raises concern for them, right? So I'm very loud, but there are times when I need to be quiet, and that's kind of when I'm moving in close and tight. Elk trails come in really handy, so my point is run tracking a lot. And then you can kind of start seeing how the elk travel, and then you'll start seeing, oh, they actually travel the best routes possible, the most efficient ways to get from point A to point B. They do side hill here, but it takes you right. It's just a nice, gentle, gradual trail that pops you onto this awesome little finger. I take that finger, and then boom, I'm on this huge main ridge system. These elk had it figured out. And so you start piecing together the trails. Um, depends. Like So we're going to get into wind quite a bit. And wind's really important. Dirk's a huge wind guy, big time. And that's why he gets a lot of encounters. He doesn't educate elk. But where's the wind predominantly going to go when the elk are not bedded? So the elk are either it's in the morning or the evening. They're thinking about transitioning. They're thinking about food. They're thinking about water. What's the wind doing? The sun, especially if it's the east-facing slope, it gets the shade the first in the afternoon. The thermals are going to start to take over. What's the wind going to do? It's going to go down. Cold air is going to go down. So it's going to be going jamming down those feeder creeks, and that main creek is going to be coming down, right? So coming underneath there could be good for afternoon, evening, or in the morning. However, that creek looks pretty good. It's going to be loud, okay? So your hearing might be not as good. There could be more water, so there's more density as far as brush and growth and old growth so your sounds are going to be muffled you have to think about all that stuff so i don't know depends on where the elk were bedded in here 
My easiest answer for you is I always like to come at elk at their level. So, for example, I generally, like this is generally speaking, wind is going up, wind is going down. And it's kind of perpendicular to cricks. Sure, there's crosswinds and stuff like that. But generally speaking, you want to come at an angle on the elk's level so that if the wind does get funky, it goes up or it goes down. It doesn't go right to them. Does that make sense? So my general answer is I come at their level, Dirk. Yeah, I would say the same thing. Just looking at that, <clears throat> depending on where the access point is, I would never walk right up that creek bed unless there was a decent trail there that where I could quickly get away from my vehicle and get up in there. But then once I get up there to a certain spot, I'm going up right up one of those little ridges. You see that little place marker? I'd either go up the left ridge or the bottom ridge and then kind of work my way up. And you can kind of see it goes steep, 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 and then it kind of breaks over right there. That's where I'm going to I'm gonna stop. I'm going to be bugling up, and up, up into that little bait kind of a somewhat of a basin yep yep and then and then i'm gonna be looking at the time of day um where's the sun at is sun is sun starting to hit this um well if the elk are up above you and the sun's starting to hit it guess what they're gonna smell you so it's almost you're almost better off to 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 come in instead of coming in from that bottom by that creek the part of the map that you don't see that would be directly below, I would come in over here and kind of side hill my way through. That way, I'm going to try to be on that level. I'm going to kind of try to second guess where these elk are going to be. They're probably not going to be at the top. They're probably not going to be in the bottom. Maybe halfway or maybe that bottom third of that drainage is where they're going to be. So I'm going to try to be on that bottom third line contour line and I'm going to work my way through there now they're just a little above me I can react it's easily for me to hike up and get on their level they're below me I can drop really quick but you want to kind of kind of hunt that middle ground I I, I feel we're going to get easier scenarios. walking too I got scenarios coming up uh for detail I think more than anything it, it kind of um a lot of these maps will predict the sun is in a certain point in the sky, then it gives, gives some shade contours in there just to give the map a little more depth so it's easy to read. This is kind of a real-life place where elk have died. So this is Idaho. Uh, I'm going to take a screenshot of this. You can. Oh. You and about 500 other guys hunt here, so it's not <laughs> big deal. So the basin is where the elk feed, okay? So we don't kill elk in the basin because they're only there when it's dark, okay? So they're there. And you got, it's kind of a bowl, right? So a lot of guys maybe will come in from this side. A lot of guys will come in from the other side. That's fine. But no one really comes in from the bottom because it's a really long drainage. No one really does that. So most guys will come in from the top. Coming in from the bottom ain't a terrible idea, but you really can't hear where the elk are at. That's kind of what Dirk was talking about. Like it's just, you hardly go in the bottom of creeks because it's not trails and stuff like that. So for, to approach this, spot you can see like the elk feed on those open hillsides and then they bed quite a ways down it doesn't look like a long ways here but this is like if i started at the top of that basin and hiked all the way down to those bedding areas that's going to take probably two hours of hauling ass it's a long it's a long ways okay so in this particular scenario you have a finger ridge right there and you can see that it, it kind of zigs down and and you would literally follow that contour where it says finger ridge you would go down Take a left, 
you would go down, take a right, and you would go down. You wouldn't want to go down, cross a creek, angle back. Elk don't travel that way. They really don't. And if they do, it's a nice gradual wraparound lateral. That was one of the things I struggled with when I first started elk hunting was I didn't understand elk trails and that they knew the best way to travel. So you, if you want to be efficient, sometimes it's literally, it's a longer, it looks like it's going to take you longer, but if you stay on the fingers, you'll be able to cover that ground a lot more efficiently. So this is just an example of where in this particular scenario, most hunters are going to hear the elk bugling at the top of the ridge and they're going to be stoked except for they're going to hear the bugles getting further and further away as the elk are transitioning to their bedding area. And they're going to be like, well, the wind's going down. We can't really do anything about it. Although a lot of them don't seem to give a shit and just go right after the elk with the wind at their back. You're not going to catch the elk and you're never going to have the wind in your favor. So what do you do in that situation? It's first light. Three different bulls are bugling. You can tell one's a herd bull. Two other ones sound pretty good. And they're kind of looks like they sound like they're kind of moving. You might hear a couple cows in there, but it's thick. It's you know it's it's timber country. What are you gonna do? Dog them. Now, do we dog herds low or high? You stay high. Think about the top of a mountain. If I want to get from this side of the mountain to that side of the mountain and I'm high, it's like 400 meters. If I'm in the base of the mountain and I want to get to the other side, it's like 1,200 meters, right? So if you want a dog a herd, stay high. Does that make sense? And you stay high because you can hear better, and then you can finally figure out where they slow down, where they mill, and where they bed. Now we can run our Dirk Durham Prome and do the midday madness. Does that make sense? So it's just a scenario of staying high, having good, being patient, not getting greedy, and just diving in with the wind at your back. Okay. And I'm going to play on that a little bit. A lot of guys will say, yeah, I had those bulls bugling like crazy, and they just they just kept moving away from me, kept moving away from me. What was I doing wrong? Why did they why did they go away from my calls? You're not doing anything wrong. Elk are just being elk. They've already figured out what they're going to do for the day. If you want to go along for the ride, you can. But you're not necessarily pushing them off. They're just like, now we're going up here, man. If you want to come party with us, come along. But we're not going to stop and mess around here because we don't feel comfortable doing that. We're going to get up to our bed. They get up to their bedding area. It's a very defensible place for the bull to defend his cows. It's very safe from predators. It's shaded. There's probably some water close by. They want to get over there and get settled down. They've been up all night, especially full moons. They've been up all night messing around. They want to get over to that, that bed. So don't feel like, well, they just ran away from me because I bugled at them. Well, let's go back to camp and have some bacon. No, that's the, and, and you hear guys say that year after year after year, and that's not the case. Um, stick with it. Don't give up. You kind of you have to feel like, how does a wolf hunt? Wolves are hungry. They never give up. They get kicked in the teeth. What do they do? They keep trailing. They keep following along. And you have to have that same mentality that I'm not going to give up. I'm going to figure this out. Those elk may I'm not going to let them lose me. I'm going to follow from a distance. Maybe I'm going to kind of plot the course, listen to bugles, listen to bugles. Okay, they kind of quit. They kind of quit bugling. It's about the same, the right time of day, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, 9.30. They're probably in their bedding area. Okay, I know where it's at now. This huge terrain, how am I going to get there? You can't keep up with them. They're going to out, outrun you if you've fallen from daylight till 
the bedding area, you let them get set, settled up. It's like, okay, I'm going to plot my course. What's the wind doing? I'm going to plot my course, take the path of least resistance for me to get there that's safe with wind, and it's going to give me an advantage to get close. And that's, that's, that's the way you have to play it. From 12 o'clock in the afternoon till, I don't know, um, 4 maybe? Midday. I've had some crazy, incredible, I'll be standing on a hillside sweating my brains out, having a bugling match like you've never heard before with a big old herd bull. And it's like, well, it doesn't make any sense to what everyone's theory is. Oh, uh, you, you, you gotta, it's, they gotta be, it's gotta be cool out, blah, blah, blah. In the middle of the day, you find them in their bedding area, it's defensible. They don't think, they know their cows aren't gonna probably just run off and leave. They're bedded down. That's the time to get in early, get in tight and strike. So, I think that's a great way to do it. I think I've killed most of my elk probably the in transition in the morning. So like a herd bulls bugling, making his noise. But the lead cow, she's in charge. Like they're they're going, they're following the lead cow. He the herd bulls kind of back behind, doing his bugles to his ladies. Maybe he's hollering at satellite bulls. I, I love that's a great opportunity for me to sneak in and shoot him. So if he's distracted with satellite, I've done that a lot. Or same thing in the evenings. Evenings are great for me because a lot of guys, and we'll talk about this in depth, but let's say it gets dark at 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock rolls around, and you know you got two hours, maybe longer, to get to your truck or dirt bike or four-wheeler, and then you got another hour to get to base camp. And I'll be honest, you got a lot of people are thinking about that. It's like, well, shoot, I'm not going to hunt till absolute dark because I got a two-hour hike out, and then I got an hour drive. I got a big dinner. I got to make my lunch. I got to have a beer, and then I got to go to bed. Dude, I'm there, and I'm excited because at 6 o'clock, the thermals are so gosh darn constant, and the elk are feeling rowdy, and they're starting to move. And honestly, that's where I've killed a lot of my elk is just moving in and getting it done. So, e-scouting, Google Earth Pro, it's free now. Does everybody have Google Earth Pro? I imagine so. Okay. And I'm going to have Jeff help jump in on these. Onyx Desktop. So, how many of you have actually messed with Onyx from a desktop? For those that haven't, we're going to talk, you're going to see some light bulb. Toprut.com. Surely some of you have never heard of Toprut. Cool. This is going to be a game changer for you. CalTopo, which is just free topo maps, et cetera, et cetera. So um, let's go into these a little bit. So on Onyx, you guys know the roadless thing, right? You can have a roadless layer. You can have a burn layer. You can see what years were the burns, where they existed. And honestly, I'm not the biologist to tell you three years, exactly three years from that burn is the time to hunt that burn. I can't tell you. Maybe Dirk knows. I've had mixed results. Some, it just, it's, it's regional. I've, I've killed or chased bulls in burns that were still smoking. I've chased bulls in uh, burns that were a year old. I've chased bulls in burns that were 10 years old. But I've been to other burns that were a year old, and there's not an elk in sight. Yeah. I've been to burns that were 10 years old, there's not an elk in sight. It's just, you just can't, you can't rule them out. But it's, it's just like calling. It's, it's not the silver bullet. Everybody says, oh, go to Burns. Well, there's Burns on the map. We're hunting the Burns this year. That's not always the case where you're going to find the elk. Yeah, which we'll probably talk about some of these aggressive uh, calling tactics a little bit later, which is what I would go through because North Idaho where we hunt, it's thick. 
a lot of times you can't even see them at 10 yards. It's just too much brush. Um, so, yeah, that's where some aggressive uh, tactics out of the box thinking, like I'm going to go all in, throwing all my money and all my dice on the table all at once and hope for the best, or I'm going to totally screw it up, one or the other. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Okay, guys, so maps and scouting Google Earth. I'm just going to go over things probably a little faster. Stop me from going too fast. So you got to get on Google Earth. Let's say you finally got your tag. You know you're hunting a general unit in Colorado, or you got a couple of units in Montana that you're going to hunt, or here in Oregon, okay? You got to get on Google Earth a little bit. And there's ways to exaggerate your tilt in Google Earth to kind of make it look a little bit more realistic. But like Dirk and I both agree, no matter what you do, Google Earth will lie to you. It's always going to be bigger and steeper, and you just need to know that. That's a guarantee. Uh, but Google Earth is awesome because you can go into Google Earth and mark up everything. You can zoom in and figure out bedding areas, little micro meadows where you want to camp, where you could get water, where you want to glass from, where you want to bugle from, where you want to park. This is the place to do that. Not really on Onyx, to be honest with you. Google Earth, because you can do so much more. So we're looking for what the elk need. And the elk don't have a lot of requirements. Uh, you hear people say food water cover or food water security or, or whatever. But we all can agree the elk need water. They have to drink probably almost every day, almost every day. They can get water from their vegetation they eat, but obviously they're a big animal. They need their food, and most elk want some security. They need some cover. Okay, well, we got to find places like that. Just looking right here from this macro view, there's not a lot of food because it's snowed in or whatever, but you can mess with Google Earth on the time of year the pictures were taken. Do you guys know that? You can slide this calendar you can see, you can even, the time of day. So you can see where the sh the shadows start to collect. Google Earth, so you can nerd out so much. You want to find a favorite trailhead? You're thinking, like, maybe I like to hunt that spot. September 20th, September 10th, September 1st. Look at that, that view on Google Earth. Oh, yeah, there's 87 pickups parked at the trailhead. Yeah, don't want to go there. Right? Pretty powerful tool. Didn't have this when I first started elk hunting. And I've just recently started getting better, and I have a long ways to go. So I don't come before you as a subject matter Google Earther. That's more like a, a guy named Mark Livesey who's coming out with his own e digital e-scouting academy. And I will send you guys a link to that. He's, he's one of the best. He geeks out hardcore. Uh, but for here, what you're seeing is, okay, this is a real place I'm going to go elk hunt this year. Uh, I got pretty aggressive. Like, that's a 10-mile track. I'm in for a pretty good workout that day. But I know where I want to glass and where I want to bugle. Okay? And I just, what I did is I tilted that thing around in every way possible to see where are the best places to just glass from. This is not timber country elk. Okay? So this is a place that vocalizations aren't going to be keen like they are in maybe you know, Western Oregon, where there's, you know, vocalizations or these elk want to see, they want to confirm with their eyeballs. So we might let the elk do what they do and just do have more glassing spots. So you can see, I got a, a little trek here. It's a 10 mile. It's not a loop. It's a drop off, get picked up. I marked all those spots up and then I did line distance 
on, and you can see how to do that. You can write that down in your notes for line distance. And what we have here is we figured out how far we're going to hike that day, where to stop and glass and cover that whole stretch of mountains in a day. There's, that's one day. That's a plan. Does that make sense? And we're going to go through the details on how we did that. But so roadless access, meadows, rutting areas, north face benches, wallows, edges of burns, all these types of things that you want to look for in Google Earth. Okay. So before I do anything, I usually go to toprut.com and I download the KLM file for the unit I'm hunting. And what that is, is that's a nice little KLM that you drag and drop into your Google Earth and all of a sudden you have an outline of your exact unit to the T. So now you can, you can move your whole unit in any way you want and you can see the boundaries or units. You can add in national forests. So we're looking at 3D national forests. We can add in BLM. We can add in private. We can add in lots of layers through Top Rut. At the time of this, Top Rut was free, but I noticed recently when I went in there, they charged me to get some information. So I think I paid nine bucks, but I could get some downloads from there. So they might have bumped their prices. Yeah, they might. I don't know if it was just whatever there was, but I mean, I didn't mind because I've gotten so much from them. I feel like, yeah, man, here's 10 bucks for all your, for all your work. So here's a good like comparison of like in t using Topra, you can drop Topo on your Google Earth. How cool is that? How many of you have done that before? You have? That's Oh, cool. Yep. Mark Livesey. Yeah, I should look at what podcast number that is. That's really honestly one that you it's a must listen to and I even say on the podcast guys you're going to want to do listen to this in front of in front of a computer and so but I just wanted to show you there's your Google Earth view there's your topo view they each have their own advantages but it's good to have both and you can see hopefully there's no names posted here because I do I am hunting here but there's a spring, right? There's no cover by that spring. That'd be a good spring for the elk to hit on their way out. Um, you know, feed, there's feed right there that's south-facing. Get their feed, get their water, and then they're going to head. And I don't think they're going to bed in one of these timber patches real close. Okay? Down at the bottom there, that purple, I went and I, I marked that up by doing my line distance. That's a dirt bike trail. Sweet. I have a dirt bike. I like a dirt bike. I can dirt bike in there. Shut the bike off down at the corner, hike in, take a peek at first light, see if they're getting ready to move. You know what I mean? So Google Earth to me is awesome. And what did we write there? We said two, point, two to five miles from the road, place mark tool, utilize the ruler icon to measure your distances for your hikes and start planning your hikes, your loops. What do I mean by loops? Dirk, Dirk does loops all the time when he's in Wyoming. What does that mean to you? I mean, <clears throat> that means we go in from one XX point, you travel all day long, you make a big loop, but you come back to your truck. Could be a six-mile loop, could be a 12-mile loop. Yep. And they're communicating with elk all along the way, trying to find the right bull that wants to die. Or they can say the right thing to get him to want to fight. Correct. So the green will give away water, will give away the food, and food changes from year to year, and there's tiers to mountains on feed. And I don't quite have it figured out yet. Dirk, you might 
talk more about this, but like the elk know where the best grasses are that year and it can change. But I think of it as little tier systems on the mountain based on water, snowpack, available feed, downfall, daylight, all that kind of stuff. And so it could change. So I can't always just tell you this is where the best feed's going to be, but I can tell you that the elk will always know where the best nutrient-dense grasses are and browse. And that's where they're going to be. But you can do yourself a favor and look on Google Earth and locate where potential water is, where is the greens, what's south-facing, what's going to be dried up and too much sun, you know, that kind of stuff. And start to put it together. And you can move your calendar you can see in the spring there's a lot more green, but you can move that calendar and Google Earth more towards September and see what's what where is green. Does that make sense? And start formulating your plan. But that's super true, especially in like Oregon and Idaho, Montana, is that you can go too deep. And w I guess I'm going to say this now, but I know Dirk will get into it. Quite honestly, guys, you can hike your ass in six to eight miles and hunt. And maybe you get one bull to answer and you screw it up. Now what? Six to eight miles back to your truck. What if you drive your truck 10 miles, get a bull to pipe off, takes you only 45 minutes to get in tight, you screw it up, 45 minutes back to your truck, drive 10 more miles, you get another encounter. It could be a numbers game. So road hunting is not terrible when done properly. And, and don't ever, I think, don't ever hire an outfitter in Colorado to give you some drop-off camp, 15-mile horseback ride in, and then you are married to this area. And he drops you off with all the gear and stuff, and there's no elk. You know what I mean? Like, mobility is the lifeblood to public land elk hunting. Sorry I told people your secret. Well, we're no longer friends. <laughs> Um, transferring to Onyx Hunt, this is where you're going to want to at least like jot this down or take a picture. So once you figure out how to do waypoints on Google Earth, and you can do it, you have the internet, you'll figure it out. You save places as, and then you get a little hard drive, a little external hard drive, and you can get real organized, and you can have my places, and you can have each state or each unit, and you can start dropping in your KLMs, Okay. So is the Hepner unit one around here? Does that sound familiar? So let's say I was Google Earthing the Hepner unit and I marked up plans A through, let's go A through G. So I got several plans there, right? And each hunt plan, I kind of have a file for A, B, C, D. In each one of those, I got where I'm parking, where I'm heading in, the loop I'm doing, where I'm gonna bugle, potential bedding, potential rutting, where I'm going to get water midday, things like that. And I got all marked up and I save places as KLMs, not KMZs. So if you're taking notes, KLM files. Save places as, so in Google Earth, you save your markups. You with me? Open up Onyx and you are going to import your KLMs to your Onyx so it's on your phone while you're hunting. That seems reasonable, right? All my homework I've done on Google Earth, well, I want that on my phone while I'm in the mountains. How do I do that? I'm telling you how to do that right now. You download. Oh, right here, do you guys see that lower right? That's what top rut looks like. So in there I picked Colorado, Elk, Unit 76. Then it's going gonna, it's gonna to email me an attachment, a zip file. I'm going to open up that zip. 
and it's going to be, I'm going to drop it into my places. And you literally just drag and drop my places. And then when you go to sev unit 76 on your Google Earth, uh, if I, do we have internet here that's fast? I might do just to show you how to do one in a second, just to so you guys get it real life. But I'm just want rather tell you real quick. So you get your top rut file. It's I think it's free. I think it's free. I paid ten bucks and I feel like I have unlimited whatever. Yeah, I have all the states for ten bucks, and so I can just so I do unit seventy six from Colorado. Open it up, drop it into my places, and boom, I can do any like layer in Google Earth. Okay, that's good, and I can see the outline of unit seventy six. I can see all the roads this is really good stuff and then I can go mark all my stuff up really well and then save those on a hard drive now I want to get that onto my Onyx cool here's how we do that so in this particular area we marked up look at all the green this is a, a September lots of green lots of cover lots of water and I actually zoomed in really really close and down here is actual, like, the possible wallows. I'm pretty sure those are wallows. Those are wallows for sure. I actually want to put some cameras in here. But this is, the elk are going to like this. This is, like, four or five miles from the nearest Forest Service road. It's kind of box canyon, but they could escape if they wanted to. They're not going to want to unless we push them out. But this has got food cover water. This is where they're going to be for 80% of daylight. This is a great area. We can't, we got to be careful how we get in here. We can't let them see us approach and we can't bump them man we want to keep these out here we want to hunt close and um we want to so here's another food water security situation all right dirk this is that place i was telling you about on the way here yeah are you ready yep don't look too close but this is north idaho so this is how you look at a google earth and tell food water security now sure there's some brows in the timber there to the right where security but not much really I mean, there's going to be by the waters and stuff, but the elk are actually going to go to that glade, okay? And in Idaho, we don't have meadows. Meadows aren't on country like this. We have glades where there's no trees, but stuff's growing. There's green. The elk are going to, they're, they're going to eat in there. That hasn't been logged. That's just a natural glade, whether it be a rock slide or an avalanche or something. There's no trees. So that's their destination. That's where they want to eat. Doesn't look very far, does it? That's quite a few hours for us as humans to get from that food to that security, okay? But there's no real topography here, so let's add topography overlay. All right, same thing you just saw, but now you kind of can see the elevation. We got the elk are going to bed around 4,800 feet. The creek bottom's what, Jeff? You get, can you see 3,800? So they drop 1,000 to get down to water, uh, and then they go up another four or 500 feet to start their feeding. Okay, I'm going to go somewhere with this, so stay with me. AM, PM thermal, thermals. We already kind of talked about that wind and stuff, but predominantly, oh, yeah, I marked the drainage off. You can see in the bottom there. Can't tell what <laughs> creek it is. But bottom line is thermals are going to be going down creek, down creek. So when I say thermals, I mean that the this is, this is when the air is cool. So the air is going to naturally want to go down, not up. When I say thermals, I mean that like, this is based on temperature of air, right? So as the thermals get warmer and the sun starts to rise, it starts to get swirly and then it gets consistent and now it's going up. Elk make their living off their nose, right? So we can almost predict how and when they're going to move based on what the wind does in a particular area. Does that make sense? 
super logical, but we forget about that. We hear our first bugle and we just get crazy, right? So understanding that what the wind wants to do and the prevailing and then also topography terrain features like certain benches or fingers, feeder creeks, those are going to change what the prevailing wind wants to do. But here's what I want your takeaways to be. Most thermals run perpendicular, I said it before, vertical. So it's going to be up and down. And so for you to get in on elk, your best opportunity is to come in at their level not come underneath them and not come above them unless you're sure, you know, like you know the wind is right, okay? And the wind is susceptible to change on you in those er, you know early to late afternoons or kind of late morning. That's when it gets real. It can get squirrely, and you can you can really screw up the rest of your day by being too aggressive. So. Absolutely, like in the middle of the day when you got you got you got an open hillside and you got a lot of thermals going up, but if you're in a in a cool creek bottom a lot of times that air is following the creek all the way down so you can get that you can get around or get to the spot to where you need to be by following that creek bed and then getting up and getting on their level there so um but it's not always a constant because last year last year was a weird year for wind for me there was a few days i had a bull across this river i'd i'd, I'd get him to bugle every morning at daylight go down there it's still too dark to shoot I'm like all right we're climbing up to him and thermal should be blowing downhill we're at the river they're blowing straight up to him three days in a row i never did get on that bull because i didn't want to blow him out of there and i was waiting for the the time to be right and end up killing but uh so you know we there's there's some it's just like the the silver bullet or don't ever make the certain call to the elk i mean these are these are fairly common these thermals, but there's always an exception in certain places. So, I, yeah, I guess that's important to bring up, Dirk. These there are exceptions. We're just giving you like the general rule of thumb. There's going to be times where you're in a creek bottom. I can tell you when as soon as you ask me, I'm like, oh yeah, last year I remember dropping way down in the bottom of a creek and walking that creek and checking the wind, just hoping that it would stay because I was trying to get on a bull across the other side. And it worked real well. I finally got over there, and the wind kept it down. But it was about 1 o'clock, and I couldn't go up after him yet because now I'm in the bottom. And if I go just a little further, it's going to swirl. And then if I go a little further, it's going to suck to him. So I had to just wait for about 3.34. And this was an east side slope, fortunately for me. So it got shade first, wind got consistent, and I was in on him by about 3.30. But I definitely utilized the creek bottom. I don't like creek bottoms because you can't hear. Uh, and a lot of times you can't see. And so I guess we're assuming that you already have elk fairly pinpointed. Now you're going to utilize a creek bottom. So, okay, so in this example, I have a National Forest Service road off on the left-hand side. And that road keeps going on up. You can bail off with an ATV trail. And then you have your three waypoints here marked in the bottom. Again, that same example. Okay. Remember, the elk are going to bet are going to be betting on the waypoint furthest from everything to the right, and they're going to be feeding in that open glade. And then there's water in the there's water in the bottom in that middle pin. All right. So your average guy is going to take this National Forest Service road, and then. They're probably going to get on their ATV 
and when they they're gonna bugle off this ATV trail, and this ATV trail dog legs back up. They're probably not gonna park their ATV unless they know better and head down this ridge. They're probably just gonna park, bugle, walk out, whatever. Here's how I would approach this: two different ways. So, if you park over on the Orange National Forest Service and take that white, those white arrows going down, you have to now go all the way down the mountain over a thousand feet, cross a creek. That's when you're, I think as soon as you cross that creek, that's when you're basically out of the game, can't hear anything. You, you, you don't know what's going on. And we're talking, this is timber country. This isn't open glass, these elk up, see where they go. All this changes when you're in that country, but you guys are Northwest hunters. So I'm giving you Northwest examples. So you could do that, but either way, the best bet probably is to go all the way around ATV trail, park with that ATV trail dog legs at first light and start walking that ridge and start pitching bugles off both sides of that ridge and trying to locate your elk. Okay, so we're walking down this ridge and we locate our elk. They're still in their feeding area. Do I dive right after them right away? No, I'm going to hang out and see what they're doing because I know that they just got done feeding. And I know that they're going to be moving. And I know that when elk move, generally the bull will bugle on his own without any, without me enticing him. Bull's going to probably push his cows. He has three. He has, I mean, how many cows do, do your elk have in a herd? Could they have 200, 10, 3 to 10? Okay. Let's say, he, let's just take somewhere between like five and six cows. Okay. He's going to run five or six cows. He's going to bugle on his own a couple times from the time they leave there feeding area to their bedding area I I really don't need to bugle much at that point I'm going to hang out on the ridge and listen to where they go um, if they don't give away their location I'm going to get nervous and try to figure out you know but chances are from that point I'm going to let them kind of get going where they want I'm not in a great position to really dive down 1500 vertical feet in brush country cross the creek and get to them like that so there is some patience involved here in getting a bead on their direction. I really like to pinpoint the elk, and then I really like to let them get where they want to go because then I got them, you know what I mean? Then I have my opportunity. So that's just kind of an example of access-wise, where to come in from, where to come out. It would literally take me, and this is a real place I've hunted, I would say it would take me about 10 minutes to park my ATV and walk down that ridge. It would take me three hours of good long hiking to start and park my truck on that National Forest Service Road and go down that ridge. I would probably hear those elk right away because they're in their feeding, but they're going to go down too, cross, and then like Dirk said, you're not going to keep up, not even Dan the fitness man. No one's going to keep up with these elk, okay? So midday thermals are just the opposite of those, you know, morning thermals. We talked about those. Uh, the only thing I want to say about midday thermals is that, one, they're generally pretty consistent. Honestly, like they're that's the best. That's why Dirk's killed most of his elk between, what you say, 12 and 2? 12 and 4, probably. 12 and 4? Yeah. It's the most consistent thermal wins. And you need consistency to kill elk. As far as, like, boots on the ground and scouting, Dirk and I kind of talked about this. So let's give him the Cliff Notes version of our conversation we had yesterday yeah. on the way down here. And I'm going to let Dirk talk so I can take a break. Oh, okay. Thanks for putting me on the spot. <laughs> and go. <laughs> okay, so we kind of talked a little bit earlier about Google Earth versus reality. 
So this looks great on Google Earth. We get there and you're like, well, that kind of looks the same. Not really. So you have, you know, Google Earth is going to show you vegetation and stuff. It's going to kind of show you some ridge lines and stuff. But once you get there, um, you're really going to have to put your boots on the ground and go investigate those places that you've got markers on. So we've already marked up our maps. We've transferred our files to our phone map. And now we're going to go find these places. What are we looking for, guys? Are we looking for, this is uh, July. Are we looking for, you know, where where the, the bulls are at today? No, no. We, we want to know where the bulls are going to be in September, okay? We also want to know where the cows are at right now. Um, how do you, how do you guys tell the difference between cow elk scat and bull elk scat? Do you guys, can you tell the difference? Can anybody tell the difference? Yeah, yeah you taste it. Yeah. The older it is, the older the bull is, uh, the sweeter the taste. Um, tastes a lot like sugar babies. So you guys should try that sometime. No, not really. <laughs> Kick that guy. Um, it's been my experience, what we're looking at right here by Dan's boot, that's cow elk crap. Those bigger, clumpier type stuff. In my, in my world from, well, September world, from bulls I've taken versus uh, bulls other people have taken, you know, when you're working up that bull, you kind of see, you see some stuff come out. And typically on bulls, it's small. It's those little little ones about the size of the end of your of your uh, pinky here, a little smaller than a grape, maybe maybe almost as big as a grape. Um, I've seen some the biggest bulls I've ever seen on the ground had really small turds. So when you're looking for sign, you see that in the summertime, that's great. Those big clumpy ones, because you've probably got a bunch of cows around. Guess what cows mean? Cows mean that's the bait for your bulls. So um, we need to figure out where those cows are at today and where they may go in September. So um, a lot of times bulls will live away from the cows most of the time. The rut comes along, they come down and they take those cows. They may rut right there where you found the cows in the middle of summer. They may take them and move them up. They may move them up into a place that's a little more defensible, you know, up into the, a little bit higher country where they got ridges and knobs and steep, nasty terrain that they can defend these cows from other bulls. So um, we want to find these places. Um, what's a good way to tell if the elk have been rutting there? Rubs. Yep, rubs. So if you're looking around and you find a spot that, wow, there's a whole bunch of fret a whole bunch of rubs from last year in here. Man, this ought to be really good. But you have to kind of think back too a little bit. What kind of weather patterns did we have last year? The summer and the fall. What about the year before? So there's no old rubs here, but you got rubs from last year. Chances are, unless you've had the same exact weather pattern two years in a row, the second year, those bulls may not rut in there at all. They may rut in a complete different place. So what we're looking for on rubs is we're looking for old ones that are 20 years old. You know those old trees that have kind of healed over and the bark's kind of come back around and you can just see some bare spots on them. You can see those. You've got ones that are 10 years old, you know. 
you got ones that are five years old. They're still got lots of sap on them and stuff. Some of the trees are dead. Some of their some of them are still alive. And then and then we also have some rubs from last year. You find a place like that. It's like okay, I have some pretty good confidence that I can come back here in September and find some bulls that are going to rut. You may or may not find any cows in that area. Now sometimes now we talked about this yesterday, and Dan kind of talked about well, what about you know he's been kind of screwed over on this deal before he's like i found a bunch of rubs in this one little spot it's like i'm going there in the rut and that's where the bulls are going to be but you have to know how to identify a rutting ground versus these bull bedrooms these little hidey holes before the rut ever comes along um in the summertime those bulls kind of live together then they kind of separate before the rut comes. They kind of go off by themselves in these little spots a lot of times. And they'll have a, a, a bull bedroom, may not be a 20 or 30 yard circle here, and there'll be a bed. There'll be some rubs all around, all around in it. There'll be old rubs, there'll be new rubs. But August 15th, September 1st, you may not find an elk there. There may not be an elk within two or three miles of that place. Why? Because that that bull has gone there. He stripped his velvet. He's he's sitting there. I kind of use the illustration of uh, Rocky in the meat locker punching, punching the beef. Right? He's in there getting worked up for the rut. And when the time's right, boom, he's gone. Where's he going? He's going to find those cows. So it's super super important if you're going to do boots on the ground scouting. If you know if you live close enough to your elk spot, to make sure you go. And, put, and try to find those cows, you know, whether you're putting up trail cams, whether you're glassing at dusk and dawn, whether you're just hiking around and looking for sign, you know, we're looking for the, the cow tracks, calf tracks. It's like, okay, I'm going to find these cows. I'm going to kind of keep track of them, especially if, you, if it's local to where you're at. Then you want to kind of monitor. It's like, okay, well, they're kind of staying in that same spot. Sometimes cows will move off, and you know, depending on the feed and stuff, they're going to follow the best feed. But that's going to be your key to finding those bulls during the rut. I would say that if you're hunting a new unit, this is what Dirk does, and I think it's a good play. Is especially if it's a new to you unit, is once you've verified and marked up your phone, okay, and you're going to scout, and it's July. Before you even go look for rutting areas, you need to verify access. Verify your road systems and drive them. Verify your four-wheeler routes, your dirt bike trails, your stock routes. Where is everybody going to camp and congregate? That's not – they're going to hunt close to there. So Dirk always drives all the roads. It may take you a tank of gas. It's, it's well worth it, especially if you have plans A through H. Well, you need to know the best ways to travel. There are times where I've heard Dirk tell me he literally hunted in one area, got in his truck, drove 60 miles. The next day, hunted another area, got in his truck, drove 60. That's 180 miles just for three hunts in the same area. So he knows that area. That's how he's able to do that. So it's important to burn a tank of gas and drive the roads and verify your access and stuff just to get familiar. So... Another reason why, also, if you know the road system, you know where the people are going to be camping. There's these really nice camp spots. People are probably going to gravitate towards that. Okay, where are the people going to be? Where am I going to be able to get away from people? 
if I want to hike or if I want to hunt and hike through from one road system to another, it may not be too far. That's a doable deal. Maybe you have a buddy. He parks his truck in one spot. You park yours in another. You hunt through. Teamwork. You don't have to double the miles back and forth. Um, also, let's say you get something down. If you know if you know the road system, trail system, let's say you shoot a bull and you're like, oh, man, it was horrible getting here. But if you know there's a road a half a mile below you, well, hey, guys, we're just going to go right out the bottom and it's going to be a done deal. So that's where those handheld uh, maps like your base map or your Onyx are going to come in really handy. Um, I, I, I can't stress how important it is to know your road system and your trail system. You'll talk to the Forest Service. Hey, how's, it, how's this trail? Has it been cut out? Oh, yeah, it's good. Don't always buy that. I know guys that go have, you guys have heard of the XO death hike. They've, they, they go on these extreme long hikes every year. They talk to people from the forest service. They talk to everybody. Hey, how are the trails? Have they been cut recently? La la la. And you can't always trust the Intel. You got to kind of go look for it yourself. You may get to the trail and be like, Oh yeah, I'm going to plan on doing this bivy hunt or I'm going to hike out through here. You get there. It's nothing but windfall, windfall. It hasn't been cut out in 10 years. <laughs> There's trees growing in the trail. That's a reality in a lot of in a lot of North Idaho or in a lot of other places, a lot of a lot of states. The trail maintenance has gone way down. They don't have a budget for it. Um, so they're just because there's a trail there doesn't mean it's really even worth a hoop. But okay, Dirk, this next part is just an overview. I'll have Dirk speak to these. So diaphragm reads. I obviously really value you using those this year. Um, I don't know if it's important that you know the anatomy of a diaphragm, but the bottom line is, is what call do you have right now? What is it? Do you have a pallet plate, a dome, a backing? What, what do you have? And is, do you like the sound? Do you feel comfortable with it? I would say if you can go get all the Phelps calls or whoever, but probably Phelps, they, they're a main sponsor of this camp. So get support and get them all. And find out which ones you you do the best at. So guys, and, and all elk calls are not made equal. Whether it's within that same manufacturer or my calls versus Brand X, everybody does something a little different. Everybody's got a little different secret sauce. What works good for your best friend may not work at all for you. <laughs> so you have to kind of experiment a little bit. Maybe your best friend uses the Phelps pink one. Maybe you're you would like the Phelps black one. Everybody's a little bit different, as we've seen today. We got guys with super narrow pallets. We got guys that do have all these different struct structures of their mouth, and then also the way they blow, the way they hold the call with their tongue. Everybody's a little bit different. That way, that's why there's so many different latexes, latex thicknesses and stretches. For instance, on the Phelps calls, um, we try to have a wide variety of calls for every single person in the way they blow an elk call. So yeah, if you, you pick just said stretch, I like medium. So we'll just go into those real quick. Cause they're kind of middle of the road, medium stretch, medium frame. That's going to be your gray. Yep. Um, yours is kind of, isn't it? Mine's a little thicker, thicker latex, a little tighter stretch. So the thicker the latex, that means you have to put more air to it. The thinner the latex, medium and thinner, that means you have you can put a little less uh, air to it. That'd be like your orange is a little lighter. Yeah. What's the black? 
it's it's one step above the orange. Yeah. So, you know, pretty easy to blow. Doesn't take a lot of air to make some some cow sounds, um, bull sounds. I mean, yeah. What the green? The green one. It's uh, it's a pretty thin latex, but pretty tight. So, guys that have struggle with hitting a high note, they might want to go with like that green one, because um, it it's a little tighter tighter stretch. Yeah. It's uh, it's right right above the the right above the uh, gray one. The gray one's right dead center, as far as kind of a medium stretch, medium thickness latex. Pink is just a little bit thicker latex and a little bit tighter stretch. So, it's in you know the pink one, that the maverick one. Um, we have a purple one. Those are our signature calls. Those are going to be a lot of time. You know, just to try to assume. A lot of people who are more aggressive type callers who need to put more air into their calls and, and require a lot more other calls usually gravitate there. With that being said, I've seen people who are brand new pick them up and use them and be like, oh, this is way better than some of the others we thought they might be able to use. So you never can call it. But uh, if, I, if I can spend time with people a little bit watching how they blow a call, I can usually kind of like, well, you should try maybe this one or you should try that one. So typically, yes. A higher pitch, if it's tight, if it's stretched tight, yes. Um, if it's not stretched as tight, that's more, you're probably going to get a lower pitch. So as some of these calls break in, like that Maverick, it's going to break in, and then you're going to kind of get full spectrum. You're going to get some lower pitch cow calls, you, and then you'll still be able to blow it and, and push hard with your tongue and get those high, high notes. Yeah, it's it, a double. So last year's version of the purple diaphragm and the signature call, the Smith signature call, then um, it was a double read, and not a lot of people could blow that thing uh, because it took so much air pressure. You would have to blow so hard you'd almost see stars trying to get a bugle out of that thing. Uh, for 2020, we've revamped it, and it's now a single read. It's a little thicker latex. Then the Mavericks, it's still our thickest latex, but it's way more user-friendly now. Um, and you can make a little deeper calls being that thicker latex. But it's stretched pretty tight, too, so you can get some great bugles out of it, too. But it still takes more air pressure to run than, let's say, any of them. They're, they're more like the signature calls. Those were designed around three different people's perspective on how they like to call that the maverick that red one that was designed around the way i like to call the pink one it was designed around jason phelps and the owner of the company um on the perfect read for him and then that purple one was for charlie smith and the way he likes to blow a call so um that's that's kind of how we we design those and then the other ones just kind of fit different notches in that spectrum of of kind of a broad broad spectrum of of consumer needs yeah if if you tend if if you tend to blow pretty hard uh on your regular ones um sometimes you feel like man i, I have to hold back a little bit those signature calls are definitely a way to go because then you can really put some juice to them and they're going to stand up a lot better they're going to hold up a lot better uh to aggressive calling so yeah okay so that's for you what time is it 12 almost 12 we're gonna haul ass through this, but I mean, this is kind of meat and potato stuff. You don't get this online, you know what I mean? Like this is where you guys are gonna elevate your game with your brain. Okay, we'll we'll get the fitness done tomorrow. We will shoot today. We 
we have to shoot, and you're going to get the one-on-one time. We're going to do that after lunch. We just flip-flopped it based on what you guys is. I hate switching the itinerary up, but we're just kind of, we're going to basically respond to what we feel like is going to get you the most bang for your buck. So let's talk about knowing the language. So keep the reads in the truck. We said about that. Practice year-round. Uh, I'm a huge calf call guy. I think that's really realistic. That'll separate you from a lot of other hunters. And, you know, I tend to agree with Joel Turner. Like some bulls are definitely more interested in the 16-year-old girls than the 45-year-old girls. And so it's just the reality of like they like that sound. And so, Dirk, will you hit me with a couple of cow-calf combos? So I've always liked that integrated calf. To me, it brought like herd realism. Like, okay, there's calves there, there's cows there. There's a variety of tones and octaves floating around. A location bugle. Again, Dirk kind of went over it, but again, a, a location bugle is your bread and butter. I generally locate with a cow call first. I've always liked to save my bugle for when I want to call a bull in. But I do locate bugle. Don't get me. Don't get it twisted, and I'll, you'll see that in a second. But I usually start with a cow call. That's a little different than most people, but I do the same thing. Do you? Yep. Okay. So let's hear Dirk's location bugle. <coughs> Non-threatening. Hello, I'm out here. Where are you? When do bulls do location bugles in real life to each other? In the day, at night in the dawn, in the dusk, when? Whenever, all the time. All the time they want to know who's like, who's out there or where's the other, where are the cows, where are the bulls? They're kind of advertising their presence, you know, like, hey guys, new game, new game in town. I'm over here. That's it? <laughs> yeah. Um, then there's challenge bugles, bull call into cows, chuckles versus grunts. And I'm just, again, I know you heard this, but I want to, again, get you some reps, so... Let's do a challenge bugle, and we'll talk about when to do this. But you are challenging a bull to a fight. You are – there's some guys out there that are going to tell you that this sound means this, this sound means that. I'm not one of those guys, but I'm going to tell you right now, there is definitely a change in tone and emotion when a bull wants to fight. And so that's all I know when I make sounds. So let's hear your challenge bugle. Short, gets to the high note, cuts it off fast. It's, it's very aggressive. Let's do your, and I don't know what you call this, Dirk, bull calling to cows or bull talking to his cows. Do you do that one at all? This is not a herd gathering, but it has a little bit like a lip ball in it, and it's real short. So he's not talking to another bull. He's talking to his ladies. And if you do that to his ladies, a lot of times, a lot of times, the bull's not going to appreciate that. A lot of times you'll, you'll hear a bull walking up a ridge, following his cows, and he'll do that over and over and over and over again. You hear a lot of guys say, guys, you don't want to bugle very much. You don't want to call very much. Hogwash. If you ever, if you ever spent any time around elk during the rut, and calling elk successfully, 
you're going to find out elk, you, when they're hot, they bugle more than I do. And I'm bugling a lot. You know what I mean? So bugle with a purpose. You don't just walk around bugling without a purpose just for no good reason. But if you feel like, I might be bugling too much maybe, but maybe you're not because if you're probing every depth of every little nook and cranny of the terrain, I might have bugled two minutes ago, but I'm going to walk over here and bugle here. I'm going to bugle over here. But you got purpose in that. So, but if you sit in one spot, stare at the sky, and you just bugle and bugle and bugle and bugle over and over again, there's not much purpose in that. So think about what the elk are doing, just like that bull calling cows, as some people call it. Um, I don't really call it anything. I just It's that short kind of a lip ball scream that and it is that's a good description of it it was bull calling cows um you'll hear those sometimes and he'll do it over and over repetitively every breath sometimes when they're super hot i just think you should be able to have all these tricks in your bag or at least when you're hunting identify them oh that's what dirk and dan were talking about that's what that is okay um, I might even make up a few, but give me a challenge bugle with chuckles versus challenge bugle with grunts. <laughs> I got more. Just wait. Oh, here we go. So the ladder was chuckles. And t again, there's no rule of thumb, but I would say generally younger bull, generally speaking. Those grunts on the first end of that challenge, I'm gonna get a little more excited. That's a little more maturation. That's probably, it could be a bigger bull, but it could not be too, right? But just generally speaking. How about this one, Dirk? I want you to give me a bull, like I'm in on a herd bull, I got his cows, things are going good, but some bike starts barking at me, what can I do to chill him out? Bark right back? Yeah, I'm gonna bark right back at him. Um, and kind of, I was talking about this a little bit earlier, but uh, a bark doesn't necessarily mean the gig, gig is up. You know, a lot of guys will say, oh, you hear a bark, game's over, let's go home, pack your bags, let's hike out of the basin. But that's not always the case. There is an alarm bark where when the, bark, when the cows or a bull barks and, they, and then they run like hell, yeah, that's, that's an alarm bark. But a lot of times, um, it's like a curiosity, like, eh, I'm not so sure about what I see or, or what I heard over there. So they'll bark, and they're looking for some kind of a vocal uh, reassurance that, no, hey, man, I'm an elk. And a lot of times, if you bark back at them, they're like, and they'll bark a, a couple more times, and you bark back at them, they're like, okay, that, that's another elk, I no, no big deal, guys. I, I guess you're an elk after all. So, um, so it's really good to put a bark into your repertoire of elk sounds. That way, if you have that bull that you're calling him in, and he hangs up and he barks at you, you can bark back and challenge him a little bit and call him to say, no, you show yourself. You're kind of like calling him on the carpet. He's calling you on the carpet, but then you can flip the script and call him on the carpet and then sometimes move up a little bit and get that situation to, to work out. The first time I ever barked at an elk, 
I was walking down this ridge, and I jumped this spike up out of his bed, and he ran over. He was looking right at me, and he's like, Vroom! he barked at me. But I knew there was a big bull in the area, and I didn't want that to, to, to give it away. So I immediately, when we were so close together, he was 40 yards from me, I immediately barked back at him, and then I started chuckling. <laughs> and every time that stupid spike would bark, I would immediately bark again and start doing the chuckle thing. Well, he did that a few times, walked around, and then he was confused. You know how spikes are. Spikes are curious and not the smartest. So he kind of kept following me around looking like he was so confused. He'd never seen a person before. But with that vocal interaction between me and that spike, Big Bull starts screaming. Here he comes. Came in. I could almost see him. And then guess what? Good old... Good old wind screwed oh. it up. The wind, the spike didn't screw it up. The wind screwed it up, and the bull took off. And I was able to run over to a little opening in the glade and see him. And he was a bull of a lifetime. He was oh. absolutely like a three ninety bull, oh. giant. Um, but anyway, that was right there. I was like, man, I'm sure glad I did that. That spike, you know, I barked back at that spike and kind of turned, kind of flipped the switch to ter- try to turn a, a bad situation into like a good situation so thinking out of the box out of the box tactics i love it yeah he's typically hit his his hang-up point and a lot of times they will hang up and they're funny they'll they'll kind of they'll stand where they don't want to show themselves until you they'll they will stand in almost like a little you can look look here you can look you can take a few steps around you still can't see him and a lot of times, I don't think they can see you. So during that hang-up period. Yeah, I call those hang-up locations, right? And that's going to be really important when I get to the slide on solo elk hunting. Y'all need to be thinking about hang-up locations. So we, we talk about elk being so dependent upon smelling. But here's the dichotomy in elk hunting. The, for whatever reason, over sm- before smell, a bull, if you're calling with him and he's coming in, he wants to see with his eyeballs and verify. Does that make sense? And so you as a hunter can up your game and shorten your learning curve if you can identify hang-up locations and get your shooter out to that spot first. Because a bull will come in, he'll hang up at that location, he doesn't see what he should have seen, and if he's going to still come, he's going to now create the wind arc, and we can, we're going to get into that in a second. And so as a solo hunter, I don't have a dirk, so I'm going to try to be Dirk, and I'm going to try to be my shooter at the perceived hang-up location. Are you with me? And that's when you really start getting into the art of howling to call in elk solo. And when you can start calling in elk solo, it's really easy when you have a shooter. Does that make sense? So I don't – do you know why? I mean, elk, visual perspicuity is what they're looking for first. They don't get that. And if they're still interested, they're going to wind arc or they're going to flip and go back to where they came from. And you're going to be like, oh, he hung up. You screwed it up. You didn't get to that hang-up location. And the next slide is about elk vision. It's weird. So elk see, but basically they have a 20-60 vision. They can't quite see as good as us. Does that make sense? So when we're standing there at 60 feet, that's what an elk can see at 20 feet. So they can't pick up a lot of detail, but they sure as shit can pick up movement. I'm not sure what the no red cone means. 
but that's just they from can't the, see the color red. They can't see the color red. I guess they can't see red at all. No, that's, why that's I have their a, vision. Twenty sixty, twenty sixty vision. You have twenty twenty. Hopefully, that's so, why I have a red truck. Aha, uh-huh. gangster. But here's the thing that's scary: is they got a two hundred seventy degree field of view to R one twenty. Their peripheral's insane, insane. So you have to respect to some degree that, yeah, they don't, they're not, you know, I'm not worried about too much about what camel I'm wearing or if my face is painted, but I'm really concerned about movement because they will pick that off. It's a little more blurry for them and they don't quite see full color, but they do see like ridiculous 270 degrees. Think about that. So you need to understand where an elk needs to stand to see what they want to see. And then as you get better at identifying those, then you can get better at solo elk hunting or even calling with a partner for hang-up locations. I'm going to cover uh, movement for a second. I want you guys to think about when you're on high alert, sneaking through the woods, and you're, you're soaking it all in, and you're like, oh, what was that? It was a flicker of a bird wing or maybe a squirrel running across a log or something. You pick that up. Those things are the color of the forest, right? Okay. Picture you're set up waiting for your bull to come in. You're doing this. You have a, your hands white. You're doing this. You're scratching. You're messing with your elk calls. You're, you're dinking around with your bow. That is going to be the dead giveaway. Okay. Your hands, if, if you're going to move them around, you've got to have a glove on them because these things are pretty white in movement. Your, my face is pretty white. I, my beard's white, but I'm not doing this, right? I'm, my, my face is usually pretty stable, and a lot of times I may even have my bow, my cam, my bow in front of my face just to kind of break up the outline. But your hand is your dead giveaway, just like a bird wing, just like a squirrel. So those are kind of those little, little details of the setup that go a long way, and that, and that will make them, make them hang up. Some guys, their hat. I watched these guys elk hunting in North Idaho the other day. This bull screaming, coming in, and he stepped out in the view, stepped out right, ready, almost ready for the shot. And as soon as that bull stepped out, boom, he was gone. That guy wasn't moving. His hat, though, that thing was really super light colored and stood out like neon. Like it was a really light colored, cream colored hat. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, dead giveaway. I can see that hat from ever. So bull pops out, he sees that hat. You know, you don't necessarily have to have camouflage. Brand A, brand B, you can wear neutral tones, but they have to be like forest, the uh, forest type tones, a little darker, not super dark, but like earth tones. That way you don't just stick out like a neon sign. And we're going to get into shooter collar setups here in a second, just so you can kind of start thinking from a collar's perspective, which is arguably the most important role. Shooter Sorry, you're the hero, but you really you don't do much. Your job is just to make sure you don't get busted pulling back and you don't set up in front of something where you can't get a shot, you know, and you got your lanes. But the caller, and Dirk has been the caller for many great elk hunters. I'm going to have you talk about that when we get to it. Yep. Um, their wind, olfactory, as far as receptor sites. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen the scale of, like, a bloodhound dog's here, a white-tailed deer's here. An elk's right here, and a human's here, and a black bear's here. Elk can smell. They, they make their living off the smell, and I think you guys understand that. You can't fool their nose, uh, but I think their vision is uh, 
I think it's underrated, honestly. They're pretty dependent upon their vision, especially bulls. They really like sizing each other up. Wouldn't you, if you were going to get in a fight with somebody, at least want to see what they look like first before you really committed to that first punch? So bulls are very, you know, and then elk are funny, man. Like, they don't just see each other and run up and fight. They got a whole song and dance. Did you catch Dirk talking about displaying, paralleling each other? It kind of gives them an out clause. Ah, that's nope, I'm out. You know, or they will parallel each other. And which bull do you think, like, is going to win? The one on the downhill side or the uphill side? It's hard to say, but I would want to be on the uphill side so I could have some momentum coming down. So if you think bulls like coming up from the bottom, we'll talk about that too. All these things I'm sure you've heard of, and if you haven't, your mind's probably being blown because it's a thinking man's game. If you really is, and you got to do it fast, and it's situational dependent. Um, elk behavior, we're going to come back to that. I want to hey. do – Hold on, I want to yeah. talk about the uh, the smell the smell thing. Okay. Okay. I get lots of questions on, hey, but don't you guys use scent lock? How come you guys aren't spraying down with the scent eliminators? Scent lock. Yeah. How, yeah. How, I, I still go with the, those questions. My and, mind's blown. And I'm like, well, no matter no matter what, unless you're inside of a bubble, an elk's gonna smell you. Your breath your skin on your face, your hands, everything's going to emit a scent. And let's face it, you're in elk country. You're, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're going to smell. But if, if you can, you know, personal hygiene's good. If you, can, if you can clean up every night back at camp, take a shower, take a, I don't care if you got to crawl in the creek or an icy lake, do it. Because you, we all sit next to the stinky kid in school, right? The stinky kid comes to school, you sit there, the whole classroom will smell, right? Same with your same with your scent. Same with your scent. I mean, you can control it and like keep your scent down. That way it doesn't go as far. But Yeah, you can minimize your scent. You can profile. minimize your spent your scent footprint a lot, yeah. but there's no way to get rid of it hundred percent and scent lock clothes just don't work. Um there's there's science behind it. So of why they don't work. Yeah, and, and we'll get into some of the stuff not to buy at the end of this slide, but that would be one of them. Uh, I used to buy the uh, bull piss in a bottle. Oh, yeah. And I'd be like, well, wind's going right up my back. Here we go. And i go, that does not. I mean, you just you just have to learn. Okay, so as far as slides go, how do we? how far did we go? We made it to 41 slides. We're going to get into the elk. This is pretty much the exciting stuff. We're going to actually talk about calling in. So I got another hour on this deal, but I want you to be fresh mentally. So let's take a break for lunch now. Um. Guys, that was a long one. Hopefully you got to digest some of that information. Uh, Dirk's vocalizations are top shelf. Hopefully you're practicing your vocalizations on Real Elk right now in September. Uh, if you want to catch the back half of this podcast, head to theelkcollective.com. If you need some game bags or some hunting gear, go to blackovis.com and use the discount code ELKSHAPE, save 20%. The back half of this lecture, we really dive deep on tactics. We really uh, answer some awesome questions from our audience and we just finish up the lecture it's two hours of gold catch that there and uh, appreciate your support you have a lot of options when you listen to podcasts so thanks for choosing us if you want to give us a five-star review uh, i won't stop you if you want to tell a friend 
That's the best way of saying thanks. And guys, remember, separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one.